Hey there, and welcome to the ECM Podcast. I'm Friedrich Kunzmann, and I'm happy to be hosting this newest episode of the podcast and take you behind the scenes of new music on ECM Records. In this episode, I'm joined by the acclaimed American guitarist and longtime ECM recording artist Steve Tibbetts, whose discography-spanning anthology, Hellbound Train, was just released in July 2022. The double album comprises music from eight albums recorded over the past 40 years, starting from as early as his debut for the label, Northern Song, from 1982. In our conversation, Steve explains the nature of his double album disc and talks about his collaborators over the years, his influences, as well as the tuning and sampling techniques that make his guitar playing so unique. Okay, let's dive into it. Steve, thank you so much for joining me in this podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to cut right to the chase. Why this anthology now, and what impelled you to create this kind of compilation? Probably vanity. <laughs> okay, moving on to the next question. Well, when you get, <laughs> when you get to this age, you, you kind of look back and wonder what you've done and wonder how it would fit together. What, what's your catalog, really? Yeah, and why did you call it Hellbound Train? Now, that's, that's the title of one, one of my tunes, but I lifted that from a Savoy Brown record from the early 70s called Hellbound Train. Do you find that it, it kind of represents the scope of your music, or is it just one <laughs> little aspect of it? Yeah, even some of the acoustic, the gentle acoustic stuff has a pell-mell quality to it. Like, we're rolling downhill and headed for trouble. But it just seemed to fit. I've been asked about the cover. What is the significance of the cover? And sometimes, as you know, there are things about art that just fit and you don't know why. The puzzle Sometimes. pieces fit together, so now you've got your picture. Yeah. And you might look back and find meaning in it in the same way you look at the clouds and you see uh, shapes. You see your mother in the clouds or you see a <laughs> car or something. You can look back and say, yes, it was all meant to be when it was just uh, kind of a random confluence of, of events. Typically, when you think of a compilation record, you automatically have a sort of best of best of Steve Tibbetts record in mind. But this isn't the case, is it? No, it doesn't work this way. What is different? Why isn't this a best of Steve Tibbetts record? Well, I've seen, I used to work in a record store, and I've seen lots of best of compilations come through the record store that that seemed like experimental surgery or something, stitching together mm. things that, that shouldn't be right. They put the arm on, on, the, on the back of somebody, or there's too, <laughs> ma too many fingers or something. They seem sort of uh, glued together without a narrative. And 
I still think of albums. I still think of side one and side two. I'm that yeah. primitive. I don't think of recording in terms of wire recorders, but I still think of 45s even. So the idea here was to find the pieces that would work together, that would weld together, that had edges that met up, that would, would make a good, a good picture. Yeah, because the album seems to be divided into two different narratives. You have uh, the first is more on the electric, rhythmically more driven side. The other is calmer at times, has a soothing quality. It wasn't possible to make it a chronological record, right? Because the music just doesn't fit together if it's spread out chronologically. I could have been convinced to do that, but I'd need somebody to, to fight with. Yeah. I think that can be done. But I, I sort of took the easy way out. You also have to think about how you use music. How do you use music? When I sit here on a Sunday night and uh, uh, write out bills or send emails sometimes, I have mm. a nice stereo. I have two B&W Matrixes and a subwoofer. And I mm. listen to some of the new stuff that, that ECM has sent me. Mm. And it can, be, it can be very relaxing, pleasant, and I have stereo left and stereo right and i can i can listen while i'm working mm -hmm. now if you're driving if you've got a hellbound drive from for instance <laughs> you've got to make it from munich to silt let's say that's what your electric side is for yeah you pop it in and get get a hot cup of coffee and hit the road <laughs> Now, some albums weigh in heavier on the program than others with, uh, you know, you have A Man About a Horse that's strongly represented in the track list. Um, is that because songs off of specific albums don't really work well outside of their original context? Yes. The album Your, Y-R, that is its own planet, its own ecosystem, its own little jungle. Mm -hmm. Pulling uh, compositions out of there didn't work for me. I kept waiting for the next tune to happen, and it didn't happen, so mm -hmm. it didn't work. Uh, all of you uh, there and fans of ECM, you know lots of records that are like that. Mm. that you, you could probably... If you're a Beatles fan, as weird as the White Album is, you can probably tell me what comes after Wild Honey Pie. Or can you tell me what comes after Revolution Number Nine? Um, Good Night. Now it's oh, time. Yeah. Now, isn't that perfect? Last time we were speaking, you spoke also about Jan Gaborek and his, you know, specific phases and how you couldn't take one track out of. An album like, uh, which one did you? Rosen's Full. Yeah. Rosen's Full is its own world. That's uh, uh, Jan and Agnes Bungarnas. Mm -hmm. And it, it really sits together well. I actually, this is one of my favorite memories of your label. You can leave this in or not. I know sometimes you have to edit things out, but in 1989 I was headed to Kathmandu and I dropped off Big Map Idea and stayed in the office and hung out with Dieter Rem and worked on the album cover. 
Manfred and I went out to dinner and we drove all over Munich. We had on Rosenfull while we were listen while we were driving around. What a time to, to listen to the the producer and a new record on cassette before it had come mm -hmm. out. And I forever uh, associate that with the dark streets of Munich, looking for a place to eat at mm. midnight, and um, the beginning of one of the tunes. Yeah. Rosen's full. Da, 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 na, 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 na. And then I took the cassette with me to Nepal and listened to it there. So it became the DNA connected up between Munich, ECM, Manfred, and Bodenov. Tell me of a record that you couldn't break up. Think of one. Dark Side of the Moon. Oh, a perfect example, right? And you know what? Dark Side of the Moon. They took, they took some tracks they had sitting around that, they, like all uh, groups, you look around and see what's what what didn't work, what didn't work mm. in the last record. And some of that, like uh, breathe. You can't think of that record without starting with breathe, breathe in the air, mm. don't be afraid to care. That was a leftover track. Yeah. I could think of uh, uh, A Love Supreme, too. That's not, yeah. the, that's not the longest record, mm. but there, it has to go in that order. And that's the, true. The, the themes, it has to go from the first song to... Blah, da, na, 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 na. Yeah, the second song. So for me, it was it was a little easier to find the pieces that that uh, where the edges fit. I didn't have a, as we say here, I didn't have a dog in this chase. I didn't have a dog in this hunt. talk about your collaborators over the years the most important being mark anderson who has accompanied you from the very beginning um how was your initial contact with him like and how did your musical relationship develop over the years uh, an old friend of mine tim weinhold who had played on my first record and played on a, on a few others said uh, you want to come and hear this guy play or you want to hear this band play. They're from Austin, Minnesota. They're old friends of mine. And four or five of us piled in a car and went to a place called the St. It was uh, the University of Minnesota St. Paul Student Union. It was a dance, but nobody was there. 
Nobody had mm. showed up. So there were just four or five of us sitting there with our arms folded watching this band play. The band was called Clear. And when Mark soloed, he soloed like he was possessed. He soloed inside triplets. In, he'd play triplets inside a, a four count. His conga sounded fantastic. And I thought, if this guy can play to an empty room like this, it's highly likely that he could play in a studio and do the same thing. <laughs> so that turned out to be true, but there, were, there was more to it. He's easy to get along with. He's got a, a brilliant musical mind, and he's brutally honest. When I come to him with ideas that have percolated in my mind that are far too complex, that are just not practical. Yeah. He'll say, Steve, your ideas are really good. This idea of working with a phantom, a phantom pulse, for example. It's a good mm -hmm. idea. It looks good on paper. But you should just let me play. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then I'll sit back and let him play and think, well, yeah, I put a week of work into this idea I had, but it was much better mm -hmm. just to let him play. And can you tell me more about the other musicians that have guided your, you and your records over the years who also appear on this selection on Hellbound Train? There's one musician that's not on there that has been tremendously influential, um, Marcus Wise, of course, is on there. Marcus is a tabla player. Years ago, well, if you go way back years ago, listening when we were very young to uh, Tomorrow Never Knows, no, not Tomorrow Never Knows, uh, Within You, Without You. Yeah. There were no liner notes on Sgt. Pepper. We just thought that Ringo was playing some kind of rubbery drum. What is he playing? It was yeah. only years ago that we learned that's tabla. It's from Indian music. So when I started uh, actively recording, I thought I should learn how to play tabla. I went to Marcus. And I quickly failed as a student. My hands are just not big <laughs> enough. And I didn't have the discipline to learn tabla. And I also learned that if you really want to be able to play that instrument, you need to practice a lot. everybody in the Twin Cities area. So if I say to him, 
Mark, you know how how we use how I use samples that settle into the guitar and make its own little concert hall. And he'll say, "Yes, I know what you mean." <laughs> uh, I'll say, "Who's the cello player that's going to be able to do that? Is it going to be somebody from the Minnesota Orchestra, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra?" And he'll say, "No, it's Michelle Kinney. Michelle plays with uh, Indian musicians, and she knows." how to settle into the sympathetic strings and both be there and not be there at the same time. Mm. And he was right. It, for, for the album uh, Life Of, I tried to bring up her level, but I couldn't. She was either too far up in the mix or too far back. But when she settled in, she's there but not there. It's, it's really a, a talent. Mm. It's sort of like, uh, you know how the wind harp in Dies is there and it's not there? We're talking about Jan again. And Ralph. Yeah. People, who, those, Ralph and, and Jan and the wind harp all know harmonics. The wind harp being, sure. a, being a, a, a silent partner in that mm -hmm. classic album. So they know how to settle in. Michelle knows how to do that. Marcus brought a guitar player from the Twin Cities, a guy named Dean McGraw, over for their own duo album, Wise McGraw and another one called Insofar. Marcus said to Dean, I think this guy gets a pretty good sound on guitar, so let's try recording with him. Over the, over the course of recording two records with them, I spent a lot of time staring at Dean's playing, staring at, at how he bent notes, how he found uh, sitar-like sounds, how yeah. he let how he let the guitar ring, his touch. And then I would work with miking his guitar so that the overtones would come out. I'd find mm -hmm. one spot with one mic, there are the overtones, and then I'd listen to another mic and find other overtones, and then spread them out into stereo, and it would usually usually just take a little of adjustment to sound like a huge orchestral concert hall of a guitar. Mm. So that meant that when I started, uh, when they were finished with their records, I found, I found like Oh my God, I'm playing like Dean McGraw, <laughs> and I can't stop. One of the things that you use a lot when you play guitar is samples, which you trigger with a guitar, right? Yeah, I found that 
I find the overtone like that, I can uh, add samples that seem to work with the guitar. What you're hearing right there are wine glasses, my wife's wine glasses that I sampled and tuned to the to the strings. You can hear a little bit of it. Uh, I'm running it with a pickup, a Fishman pickup that finds the the pitch and then sends it to a program made by Mark of the Unicorn called Mach 5. This has also been discontinued, unfortunately, by the company, so I'm working with legacy software. Uh huh. But I have to find, I try to find samples that sit in the guitar. That, like, for instance, here are uh, Tibetan longhorns. Can you hear them? Cool, yeah. These are recorded in Sikkim. They work, they seem to uh, make a whole new instrument. Mm -hmm. Sort of a Harry Parch approach. What are some more of the samples that you have in there? You, you were just talking about the glass, uh, the horns. Yes, I've used uh, Tibetan longhorns. I use gongs. There was a, an afternoon in Indonesia. I was working uh, for a study abroad program over there. And um, a gong maker asked our class if we wanted to come to a gong pour. This is mm. a, both a practical and a sacred uh uh, opportunity for the for the class the the gong pour you have to make offerings to the brass you have to melt okay. the brass you throw flowers into the brass you pr uh, in this case the guy sacrificed a chicken wonderful <laughs> and then they as long as you're not the sacrifice right well good. you know in, <laughs> in Nepal in the old days in the place called Doxankali you probably you might have been they would pour the gong and let them cool while everybody ate dinner, a spread of kiwi fruit and durian. Yep. And then uh, they, play, they play the gongs and see how they are. And as while they're still warm, they shape them into pitches. And create, okay. they create an instrument that has its own tuning. Mm -hmm. So each gamelan orchestra, the keys, the gongs, the rayong, the, the gender, they will all be tuned together when they're sort of heated up mm -hmm. um, interesting so I asked this guy if I could come down and record all the gongs the next day and he said sure so I brought a, a dat recorder and a microphone and recorded every single gong and ended up with gongs and then you can't avoid getting ambient sounds chickens frogs and bugs so are those recordings, which I'm going to call field recordings, basically, are those the ones that you still use for your samples? I still use them. Wow. That's A lot cool. of them are in uh, Life Of. 
In fact, a lot of the tunes uh, sort of write themselves because of the the pitches. The nature the, of the sounds, the nature yeah, of the samples. Right, right. Yeah. All of a sudden, it sounds like this is a gong cycle. This is going to be set around a gong cycle mm. being triggered by guitar. So let's go with this. It's cheap, and it's it, easy, it's fun, instant music. Just add, add yeah. the right samples. But a, a, most of the samples don't work. There's only a few that do. Have the the wine glasses. work too. When I was working in Indonesia, I took the students' gamelan set piece by piece into my room and recorded uh, each key and each gong. It was very hot, so the windows were open. You can hear the bugs and the frogs and the rice paddies. guitar it's the same process start out with a, a decent or indecent sound whatever works then just find the samples that work with electric guitar longhorns work feeding back guitars work
Apart from sampling, you're also very much into alternate tuning systems. Do those alternate tunings directly influence where your next song is going to go? Yeah, I settled on on one one main tuning. All the strings here, D, G, B, and E, those are the same. But then I drop the A string down to a G and the uh, E string down to a B flat. So I and have this, this is on a 12 string guitar. Yeah, this is right? so everything yeah. everything is dropped down yet another full step. But that mm -hmm. gives me a nice drone. resonance from your guitar itself, right? Yeah, there's a backside to it, too. It means that just about everything ends up in the same key, unless I use a capo. Which can be sort of tedious to some people. Not mm -hmm. to me. It's okay. But the harmonics really come to, come to the fore on that guitar. The whole guitar resonates. You can hear... So this is the guitar that we also heard on Life Of, right? Yeah, this is the one the airlines broke. You can see the crack <laughs> along the back. <laughs> this was landing in Columbus, Ohio. I opened my guitar case like I always do, right when you get it off the off the luggage rack. And so are was, you telling people not to fly or not to land in Columbus, Ohio? <laughs> uh, I, took, I took it to the luggage manager and he said, you know... I retire in a week, and I hoped I'd never see one of these. I'm so sorry. Uh-oh. Well, at least uh, I got a, another. I got another free guitar out of it. Oh, there you go. Compassion and a free guitar. Yeah, he said, I'll, <laughs> ma I'll make sure we, fix, we get this fixed and replaced. Same model. That was very kind of them. And um, the tuning that you just described, is that the same tuning that you use on electric guitar too? Because if we go back a couple of albums, and if we look at the first side of Hellbound Train, you know, we still have a lot of that very uh, distorted guitar playing of yours. It's the same tuning. It's the same tuning. I've settled on that. That makes it difficult to uh, play normal guitar with normal people. And where did that distortion come from? We talked about that at, at one point before. You have a very particular, very specific distorted guitar sound. I have a Marshall JCM 500 that got dropped during a load-in in Irvine, California. And at the next gig, I noticed that it it sounded like sheet metal being torn in two when i turned the stratocaster into the amplifier there was a resonance between the celestian speakers and a demarzio pickup that was pleasing that sounded uh uh scary and cool at the same time like mm. yeah but then it would it would merge into the into the note i was playing um, again, I took that to my amp technician when, he, when I came back home, and he said, do you like how it sounds? I said, I love how it sounds. And he said, well, I'm not going to fix it for you then. Uh -huh. 
So that's the same amp, and that's the effect that we hear on albums like Exploded View. Yeah. There's no pedals involved, no... No, uh, no, I can't... I, I've, I like the idea of pedals. And, <laughs> I, I, and when David Torn, when David Torn says to his audience or to me, you've got to try this pedal, I'll, I'll get it. But usually, in fact, always, the guitar just jacked straight into the amp is the best thing. Mm. That's all I use now. Sometimes I'll use a volume pedal, and I use serious airport quality head uh, ear protection. I have to now. Okay. But the sound of the amp, pretty much full up, or as we say over here, dimed. Do you know that expression? No, never heard of it. It means everything's on 10. A dime is 10 cents. So somebody asked me, or actually it was Dean, Dean McGraw, the guitar player I was talking about before he came in with a bass player to do some work. And he, he, he said, Jim, Jim Anton, another guitar, uh, the bass player I work with, he said, look at Tibbetts' amp, it's dimed. And they, they both <laughs> laughed. Everything was just on 10. Why wasn't it on 11? We still love that movie, don't we? Everyone does. It's well, you know, they, they came and actually did a gig here. Those guys are not kidding. They can play. Oh, but, yeah. But I was out sure. of town. It was <laughs> more than more than Motorhead or Pink Floyd or, or Paul McCartney. I wish I could have seen Spinal Tap at First Avenue. Steve Tibbetts talking about his new anthology, Hellbound Train, out on ECM Records. Thank you for joining me in the ECM podcast. I'm Friedrich Kunzmann, and I look forward to sharing more new music with you very soon. Mm-hmm.